Mr. Nixon, what is the truth about our ability to fight the growing menace of communism? Well, first, we must recognize communism for what it is. Mr. Khrushchev understands only strength and firmness. To apologize to him just means weakness. Our next president must show clearly that America won't stand for being pushed around anywhere in the world. Welcome back to Timber Sycamore. It's your host with the most. Which one of us? Both. Both. We both have the most. Aren't you so lucky? Aren't you so lucky? So uh, we're going to be speaking now about the foundation of the Mujahideen, uh, which... I look way better. Uh, by foundation of the Mujahideen, I mean primarily the Peshwar 7. Uh, there's also the Tehran 8, who I guess I'll talk briefly about. Um, but they only become significant much later in this story. Um, so they're, yeah, a rel- yeah, they're a relatively small sect, generally speaking. Uh, Shia Muslims make up about 10 to 15 percent of the population of Pakistan at the time. Um, and in addition to that, uh, Jamiat Islami is also recruiting Shia Muslims, so they don't even have like that market cornered. Um, All right. So where's your uh, where's your presentation? I don't have one. You don't have one. He doesn't have one. Everybody. I have this is the level of professionalism. Don't even don't even try to show us those notes. Don't even. It's, it's Come from on, my man. typewriter. Oh my god, dude. We get it. You have a typewriter. Oh my god. I can't see jack shit on your camera, dude. Good. That's fine. You know what? We're just going to... You guys got to look at this eye candy for the next yeah. 45 minutes. So um, the foundation of the Mujahideen largely rolls back to the foundation of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh And in particular, a couple groups that arise as a result of a certain kind of uh, weird, a couple subsects that develop into what now is known as Salafism, uh, and at the time was not known as really anything in the West, right? So like the concept of Salafia already exists within these regions, uh, the West is referring to it basically as nothing except uh, the Mujahideen or uh, like calling them uh, as honorable as George Washington, uh, which is like a, a funny comparison to make kind of because it's mm-hmm. true to some extent. Um, so it comes out of the Al-Hadith movement. Um, and Al-Hadith uh So it focuses on this idea that we should be returning to the honored martyrs, the honored dead. Um, We got to return to tradition. Yeah. Yeah. And in like a very kind of boring way, uh, which functionally means eliminating fucking and making sure that nobody is drinking. No sex, no alcohol. It's like anti-college. They're very big on both of those, like shockingly, even by like at the time, like Muslim traditional standards. They'd make excellent communists today. Yeah, 
they would absolutely join the most boring groups of communists that you can imagine. Oh, you know, we're not going to name any names. So let's just like, we'll make up a name like, I don't know, a PSL. They might join a party like PSL. <laughs> no, any resemblance to real life parties is strictly coincidental. Uh, yeah. And they more recently would probably like watch podcasters who tell you not to fuck and say things like they see no future in having sex, which is... I was going to say, like, it seems like it would also resemble a lot of communist movements today and that I'm guessing that there was, a, for all the anti-sex rhetoric, there was probably a lot of, like, uh, sexual misconduct going on. Yes. Those seem uh, to go, they seem to go very hand in hand, don't they? Yeah, they do. So the main original Mujahideen group grows out of this uh, thing called the Muslim Youth Organization. Uh Rabani, who later becomes the head of Jabiat Islami, is also the head of the Muslim Youth Organization. Masood is uh, on their board of directors. And so is Golbuddin Hekmatyar, who is in every way imaginable the opposite of Masood. So Golbuddin Hekmatyar is this man who uh, pretends to be like a man of the people. He pretends to not be well-educated. He's, at the time, a college professor. Uh, he makes these, like, weird emotional appeals to the rural peasantry uh, and tries to stoke reaction that way, which is hilarious from a man who has never existed as a rural peasant. He's from a relatively minor Pashtun family, uh, which is appealing to the ISI, who are very, very afraid that he is going to, or whoever leads Afghanistan next, is going to lay claim to Pashtunistan. Which we've talked about before, the Pashtun nationalism, Pashtun, like the Pan-Pashtun yes. project. Yes. Uh, so when we talk about the Mujahideen, the West separates them into two kinds of rebels, uh, which do not mean at all what the U.S. pretends that they do. Uh, so on the one side, we have the fundamentalists, and on the other side, we have the moderates or traditionalists. Uh, the fundamentalists are also called revolutionary within their own movements. Uh, what that distinction actually means is not a reference to the level to which they practice Islam. What is um, it a reference to, then? So it references their belief in whether or not there should be a return of King Zaire Shah. Do you support a return to the traditional Afghan way of life and the like royal family's return? I or don't. do you support uh, government with zero? Uh, so depending on the group, uh, anywhere between like zero democracy and like constitutional theocracy. Can I get a little bit more democracy than that? Is it on the table? No, not really. Okay. Not, not in this conversation. And also, uh, you cannot kill yourself. Yeah. So make uh, the choice. So by the end, so Javiat probably starts off being one of the former groups. Uh, so they're objectively a fundamentalist group. Uh, the moderate rebels, quote unquote, uh, comprise of Mahaz Emili, Jabah i Nejat Emili, Harakat i Inkilab i Islami. Uh, they're all Sufist. 
would you like to discuss a little bit about Sufism? So uh, there's, mm. so the reason that Salafists come to oppose Sufism eventually is because they take a hardline stance against uh, interpretation of the Quran. They don't um, have to interpret the Quran. At all, yeah. They become like, so for the American audience, if you imagine the most annoying Pentecostal biblical literalist you know, uh, they are that person. Imagine that, but worse. And also they have they have guns. Yeah. Well, the Pentecostals, are... don't, the, don't the Pentecostals speak in tongues? Mm -hmm. Isn't that kind of a weird mystic tradition? So degree? what they what they actually probably are closest to is Christian dominionists. Okay, that makes more sense. Um, the charismatics are so weird. They're out there. I would say that charismatics are probably slightly closer to Sufism. I don't know if I would go that far. Like, I, no, deep, definitely. Deep, res, deep respect for the Sufists. Yeah, no. Uh, They're like oasis to the Beatles. How about that? <laughs> so one of the reasons that I'm making that comparison is because they uh, so. Salafists also come to oppose uh, the belief in sainthood or visiting saints' graves. So uh, in a path that kind of mirrors the split between Protestants and Catholics, where they Wait. accuse this of being like a form of polytheism. Why can't I visit saints' graves? I can visit my family's grave, right? Uh, not really, no. No? Why is it there then? That's a good question. Like, I don't. Know, have why an even answer. have graves at that point? Just have like an underground facility that has all the dead bodies in it. Because I assume you bury them so that they can come back to life in the resurrection, right? Right. Yeah. So why just why even waste all that space? That's a good question, and like, I don't. Because like an people are just going people are going to keep dying. They're not going to undie. That space isn't going to be vacant until the coming of the Christ. Yeah, this is actually like a pretty major split in the Salafist movement too at the time. Uh, so Rashid Rita, who is alive in the 1930s, prim he's doing his primary work in the inner war years, um, is the one who takes this stance against Sufism. Um, everyone after him just follows it. Uh, it's a weird stance considering he's like a pan-Islamist. So it seems counterintuitive to practice pan-Islamism and also be anti-Sufi. Because they're 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 Muslims and they're pretty yes. sizable. This is not yeah. like a, it's not some kind of fringe Rosicrucianism. This is a significant part of Islam, this Sufism. Yes. We're not yeah, it's not a relatively minor sect. Uh but out of these groups, Mojadedi uh is a So if he's pan-Islamist, does he does he does he kind of like take a position as being above the Sunni Shia split? Uh, most of them do, yeah. Okay. So they would be pan-Islamist in that sense, but not in the sense that the not in the sense that they like Sufis. Yeah, they're pan-Islamist in the sense that as long as they uh, don't practice takfir uh, against you, which is uh, the declaration of you as an apostate, you are still allowed to be around them I guess uh, there's, it, there's no there's no room for people of the book here, is there? Definitely not with groups like Hizbi Islami, uh, but with Jabiat Islami more so, and with Itihadi Islami 
uh, about as much as there is in Saudi Arabia. So yes, with caveats, right? Um, so yeah, well, there's always like at least some. Uh, so Jabiat is the only group that is run like a traditional political party. They try to recruit faces. Um, interestingly, on the ground, they are led by a man named Masood, who is now considered a national hero. He is mostly backed by DGSE, which is French intelligence, uh, SAS, and MI6. So he's backed by Western intelligence agencies. Yes, but the split between them becomes significant. Go ahead. So DGSE in the beginning. So remember earlier when I said that the thousand doctors figure would become relevant? Is it? Are you pulling it out? Yes. Uh, so the part of the reason that Masood gets so much support in the Panjashir Valley is because once he takes control of it, he almost immediately begins bringing in French doctors. Mm -hmm. uh, which in a country with a thousand doctors, if you can start throwing a doctor in every village, that is a huge boon for the people, right? It is an objective advancement in material conditions, um, which is why Masood becomes so well-loved. Almost everyone who meets him, including the Soviet generals, describe how impressive he is as a person. Um, which doesn't quite cover the entire picture of who Masood is. Uh, on the one hand, he's well-educated, he is clean-cut, he speaks French, he speaks English. Uh, his international liaison is trained in English by SAS. Um, and on the other hand, he is more than willing to carry out attacks on civilians to get what he wants, uh, which is true of almost all sides, right? That's the unfortunate part, is that, like, Masood is bad, and he is not the worst of the Mujahideen, and he is maybe not even the worst. Like, the Mujahideen are not even always the worst party in any given region. Um... So Jabia is the source of all of this. Out of the Muslim youth movement, uh, Gobuddin Hekmatyar splits off and forms Hizbi Islami. Uh, he does this because he doesn't see Jabiat as being faithful enough to Islam. Um, which in his mind means that they have to oppose democracy because he views democracy as incompatible with Islam. Mm -hmm. like the idea of voting is fundamentally incompatible with Islam in his mind. Uh, I have, that? I have literally no idea where he pulls it from, but that is the exact reason why he splits from, uh, Jambiat. Rabani is a well-educated linguist. He speaks anywhere between six and 10 languages that we know of. Um, he's a college professor again, at University of Kabul, as we mentioned. Um, exceedingly intelligent person, exceedingly good political thinker. And he is pretty much the only person who you can say those things about that is leading the Mujahideen at the time. 
Uh, there's this like trend that is noticed by Prince Turkey where uh, Jabiat will ask for alliances with other Mujahideen groups and other groups will agree. And then that truce is broken almost immediately. <laughs> like the Peshwar seven are externally fighting constantly. Internally, they're allying with whoever, kind of. They're fighting when, externally? Yeah. So uh, all of the leadership except Golbuddin Hekmatyar are in Peshwar. Mm-hmm. And Masood. Uh, Masood is on the ground. Golbuddin Hekmatyar is going back and forth between Peshwar and Afghanistan. Um, Golbuddin Hekmatyar is a monster of a human being. Explain. Uh, so he is uniquely the worst of any of these people. Uh, he is so bad that at one point, Masood allies with the Soviet government and calls for a ceasefire specifically because he views Golbud and Hekmatyar as a cancer within Islam that has to be purged. Uh, which when you're organization's sole focus is removing the Soviet government and being an anti-communist. That's kind of an impressive category to hold. Like we are going to stop fighting our sole enemy so that we can take you out instead is not the position that you want to be in. Um, Golbud and Hekmatyar is at one point so unpopular that the French and German governments are convinced that should the Soviet government fall, Mm -hmm. uh, that is actually a non-possibility. Like they, like the U S is insisting to them, this is going to happen. The Soviet government, the Soviet backed government will fall within days of the Soviets leaving. And the French and German governments are like, absolutely unconvinced of that because they realize the people kind of hate the Soviet government for a lot of reasons that we'll get into during the Soviet Afghan war. Mm-hmm. But well, they are debating ter- invading powers are not typically looked upon very fondly. Well, yeah, but the people themselves are terrified of Hekmatyar. Like they are afraid of him, which like, Dealing with someone you hate, but who's a bureaucrat is much easier to deal with than someone who you are terrified of because they are prone to spontaneous violence. Is this a consideration that would, is this an accurate reading of how the psychology would go down for the population of Afghanistan? Because I'm not even sure that that's even the case. Um, So there's definitely a certain amount of hatred towards the Soviet-backed government. Uh, Kambral is certainly looked at as being like a Soviet puppet. Yeah. Which to some extent he kind of is. He's essentially, he is essentially installed by the Soviets. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Hekmatyar is pretty much universally looked at as a butcher. Uh, Other Mujahideen groups view him that way. Pretty much everyone except the United States thinks of him exclusively as that. Uh, Colby at one point, like Bill Colby, Colby, the CIA head, uh, makes the statement that, uh, as far as I can tell, King Zaire Shah has never killed a Soviet, and the only goal we have is killing Soviets. 
Goldblatt kills Soviets. <laughs> Which so the U.S. is uh really so this is their this is their boy. Uh, six hundred million dollars in direct aid to Goldblatt and Hekmatyar. He is the six hundred. He's the six hundred million dollar man. Then that is in the nineteen eighties. So he's like, the, how many bags of coke is that? How many bricks? Uh, a so lot. he doesn't sell coke. He sells heroin. Okay, well that makes sense. Poppies, Afghanistan. Yeah, so there's a like actual tradition of growing poppies that certain regions of Afghanistan genuinely rely on. It's probably homemade. That's like you know. It's breaking talk fear, really. It is not homemade. It's not homemade. Who's making it? Uh, his lab. The CIA sets him up with all of the equipment for three, <laughs> pharmace three pharmaceutical grade heroin labs. Whew. <laughs> um, he becomes the primary supplier for heroin regionally, for sure. Uh, and almost immediately establishes a transport network with the Corsican mob. Uh, which, and so where, where's the heroin being distributed besides locally then? Uh, through the Corsican mob. To Italy then? No. Where to? So Corsica, um, we didn't talk about Gladio yet, but, well, I guess we did briefly, but one of the major Gladio operatives is a dude named Lucien Conin. Uh, he's French-Italian who joins the OSS during World War II. Oh, Corsica's in France now. I forgot. Ugh. Used to be Italy. Yeah. Used to be Italy. Yeah. So Conan also becomes the first head of uh, special operations for the DEA. Mm -hmm. Before he does that, he is sworn into the Corsican Mafia. Cool. Y yeah. Double major. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Heroin production and arrests. Great combo. Um, so the Corsican Mafia at this point is functionally acting with impunity because one of their members is in charge of the DEA. Nice. Yeah, uh, it's a super insane situation to be in. So they're trafficking. The, where are they trafficking the heroin? To reiterate that question. Where is uh, it going? So the Corsican Mafia moves it through France, Italy, Germany, the U.S., uh, they ship to Africa, they ship to Latin America, basically anywhere that is not getting their heroin provided by the Golden Triangle, which is uh, Thailand, Laos, and Vietnam, which is uh, an odd coincidence. It's super weird that these are the... <laughs> um, I don't have numbers for the 1980s anymore, but I do have numbers for 2001 to 2006. Let's hear them. Uh, 3,300% increase in heroin production. From 2001 uh, between, to 2006? Yes. Okay, so that's post-9-11. That's post yes, between 2001 and 2002, when the CIA sets up boots on the ground, there is a 650% increase in heroin production. So the increased presence of American troops is directly correlated with the increased production of heroin in Afghanistan? Yes. There is a... There is a very significant correlation, we would say. Yes. Got it. Uh, and Goldwood and Hekmatyar is the origin of that to some extent. 
you know, the CIA doesn't just walk around handing out heroin f- production facilities. Um, but the I'd, have a, is, I'd have my job made if, if they did. <laughs> you know, I'm an excellent cook, Michael. <laughs> uh, yesterday on the phone, you told me that no one would eat the food you were making. Which one? Oh, which one was it? <laughs> the stop pots? Well, no, that was because it looked, it didn't look very good, but it was delicious. It's, it's funny how um, it works out. It wasn't great for a photo, but like it's if you if you have never tried the Dutch dish Stompot, you absolutely must try it. Everybody watching. It's fantastic. So I want to make it tonight. I don't actually know what we're eating tonight. At some point, Hizbi Islami Khalees splits off from Hizbi Islami Golbuddin. And why is that? Uh, Because Golbuddin opposes the Loya Jerga. Golbuddin opposes the Loya Jerga. He also opposes voting, uh, which really only leaves you with one option for running a country, right? If we're not going to have the traditional Loya Jerga and we are not allowed to vote, uh, then... Trial by combat? Uh, well, trial by Golbuddin Hekmachar, I guess. Oh, that's that's way less interesting. Uh, it's way less fun. Yeah. For sure. Um. I would beat up all of my enemies so quickly. You have no idea. So the concept of like passion clan origin becomes fairly significant during this because it's been pretty significant the entire time, I think. Well, I mean like within the movement. Uh, so it's, it's worth pointing out. Uh, Rabani and Masood are both Tajik. Uh, Jabiyadi Islami is the only Tajik majority Mujahideen group. Uh, they also recruit from Uzbeks, Turkmen, and uh, Shia Muslims because Rabani is like a true pan-Islamist, right? In the sense that he is willing to make broad alliances with most Muslim groups. So I love the all- New Frankfurt School. Everybody go watch the New Frankfurt School. Yeah, go watch my other podcast. It's sick. yeah. I would you would think that nobody who doesn't watch that would be watching this, but you know. Uh I think this one's gonna get more of the parapolitical people, probably. Yeah. We're gonna get you know. All of my all of my female followers will watch it. I can guarantee that. So uh his not, even, not even a laugh. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. That's because you you're, you're doing your you serious. Don't, you don't, don't have, have female followers. I don't. But they're all dying. They're all dudes. Oh shit, that sucks. Are they all dudes, or did they all transition? No, they're all dudes. No, they've been dudes since birth. Okay, the sign dude at birth. Yeah, that's such a shame. It's because well, so they're it's really con- they're really convincing. I'll tell you that much. It's your fault, really. It's my fault. What did I do? Uh, you formed a cult that defines everyone as dudes. Oh, that's what you're talking about. But I've only let like six or seven people in that cult. De facto, they are all Januarians, though. Everyone who follows me is a Januarian now? Yeah. Everyone? I don't think that... I never put that in our charter. I don't recall that. Well, they're at least fellow travelers. They can be on... They're, I don't... I, I, do not, I do not accord them the title of brother. <laughs> you know what? Fine. They can they, they can all be brothers. They can all be dudes. I'm gonna get some dude pussy tonight, and I'm gonna love it. 
Um, this is all in the podcast, by the way. Yeah, that's fair. Where were we? So, uh, Jamiati Islami is, by and large, uh, a true pan-Islamist group. They are very devoted to making these kind of broad alliances. They're willing to work with um, Hizbi Wahad, which is the uh, Tehran 8, who have all kind of unified into one group, but don't seem to have like an actual presence in Afghanistan, which is uh, why we're mostly ignoring them right now, because... Like, if you're not actually present in Afghanistan, you can only matter so much. Yeah, the, the podcast called Afghanistan. We're not, we're not changing that now. <laughs> you, you get what you pay for. Yeah. Um, actually, yeah, no, that is 100% true. That's why the podcast sucks so much. It's because it's free. Yeah, because nobody's paying us. Yeah. Uh, nobody's, um, listen. nobody's Nobody's listening. That's fine. So... Uh, Idihad Islami is led by a dude named uh, Abdul Sayyaf, who is... So all of these groups are born out of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, Abdul Sayyaf is uh, probably the only true Wahhabist on the like list. He is primarily funded by Saudi Arabia and Egypt. He... Other than that, seems to mostly get his funding through like various NGOs run by foreign Muslims. Um, but almost all of them are from the Gulf states. Uh, at one point, the CIA agents call him the Gucci Mudge. Nice. Because he shows up in such nice suits. Uh, for a while, he's wearing a suit that's made of silk and uh, cashmere. That is so flamboyant. That's like yeah. Tom. That's some Tom Ford Gooch. Honestly, I admire like the look of showing up in a silk and cashmere suit to a meeting of a bunch of military leaders. I think it's very funny. Would that be very cold or very hot? You wonder. Both. Yeah, that's that's what's so fascinating about it. But he was very prepared for all weather. Well, he was ill prepared for all weather. It seems like. Maybe both. Maybe both. So Hekmatyar Golbuddin opposes any unity, right? Anti-unity. Yeah. Yeah. He, no. He hates he uh, hates indie devs. By the end of this, he is the only group to not join the coalition government that forms in 92. Uh, before that, he is attacking Jabiati Islami constantly. So he's a hater. Like, uh, like a hater of people being alive. Yeah. Yeah. He, well, that's, like his, the, that's the ultimate hater, yeah. He kills his first person before the revolution, back when the Maoists are still around. He used to just throw acid in women's face on college campuses. Mm, terrible. Um, he takes up arms because the University of Kabul raises the failing grade from 50 to 60. <laughs> Uh, he has a reputation as someone who will protest seemingly anything at any time for massive, any massive hater for really any given reason. I think this man is my new idol. He's uh, the world's biggest hater. Yeah. 
he opposes working with Jabiat. He opposes working with Mahazi Mili, with Jabai Najat, and with Harakat. Uh, as far as I can tell, only because they aren't a group founded by him. Um, so Steve Cole, in his book on Afghan history, which is incredibly extensive, uh, if you just want a really, really detailed breakdown of all of the dumb shit that's happening during this, because there is a really, truly shocking amount of shit that happens in Afghanistan during this we where have, everyone looks like an idiot. We are 45 minutes over our limit on podcasting, and we still have not finished what was supposed to be a very brief summary of events. Yeah. Do you want to just stick? I know. I love just keep let it go. Let it let it ramble. Okay. Just samurai slice the episode in half. Who cares? Yeah, that's true. That's more content. Yeah, we can just cut our intro from the beginning of this one and put it in. Then I don't have to research this week. Yeah. What are we doing next? Are we going to follow up on um, on the Soviet war in the specifics? So I think the very next episode we do should be the Americans at this time. Okay. Americans from the 60s to... So, yeah, like the end of the conservative coalition up through the beginning of the Reagan coalition. Mm -hmm. Because that's really where we start to see ideological differences in the American side. I see. Um, I don't mean to interrupt you. No, it's... It gets super funny. Like Cole talks about them a lot in his book where like the neocons will be like, we should go into a Afghanistan. And you see like the old right dudes who like are upper level CIA or upper level military. And half the time they're just like, no, why would we do that? I don't you, know any Afghani fucking people. Have you tell seen, them to handle their own country? Have you seen Afghanistan? I'm not. It's like it's like when you're at the it's like when you're at the supermarket and the line's too long. It's just like I'm not dealing with that. Yeah, no, the commit like the U.S. You want to, of, our our job is to destabilize governments. Like, mission a fucking accomplished. Right, we're like good. Head of, and the U.S. Army, they don't even see that as their mission. Like, they're the he- the head of Middle East Command is just like absolutely the fuck not. We're not no. going to war. I am not spending the next eight years in Afghanistan. You have me fucked up if you think I'm going to do that. No. <laughs> uh, what a oh, what a sweet summer child. He thought it was going to be eight years. Meanwhile, the head of uh, fucking the dude who runs Soldier of Fortune sits on the same committee that is making these decisions. <laughs> and that guy is just like, sure, we can throw away American lives. I don't give a shit. That sounds like magazine sales to me, baby. Yeah, we're on the. No, we're sitting at a desk. We're fine. Yeah. So, uh, Mahazi Mili are probably the most democratic of the groups. In terms of like traditional democracy, they're also the most in favor of a constitutional monarchy. Uh, they're really, really in like into the idea of King Zahir Shah returning, uh, who is currently hanging out in Rome. Uh, so he just US... never left. He never left Italy because we talked yeah, about he, how he just stayed. Yeah, he went and just stayed there until he moves to Virginia, where his son is now a poet. That's kind of like being a political prisoner is just having is just being forced to live in Italy. Because usually when they when usually when they really, the king, they it, throw him in prison. But it's just like you know, instead of that, it's just like it's like you know, you're going to Italy. You think Rome is his political prison and not Arlington, Virginia? Oh, 
They moved him to Supermax, dude. <laughs> yeah, not his, even the same continent. His son is still a poet in Arlington. Oh, you gotta. He's like they took the king of they took the king of Afghanistan, and it's just like, well, now you're gonna live between a, a Walmart and a Trader Joe's. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. Langley can see you if they grab a pair of binoculars. You used to have a like I don't know. You used to eat the finest, finest like Pashtun meals and Middle Eastern cuisine. Now and you get a McGriddle for breakfast. I was really wondering what you were gonna name for Afghani food. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, 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 not a not a cultural cuisine. The only Middle Eastern food I know is the uh, God. I don't remember what it was called either. It was a very delicious. Uh, Tomatoes, onions, and poached eggs dish. It's from it's from Algeria, though I think, maybe Libya. Um, I used to have a really good Lebanese place that was right near my house. I really, really miss that. Um, Lebanese food is delicious. Yeah, oh, it's it. great. No, Lebanon's Lebanon's the coolest. Uh, I also really like kabuli palav, uh, which is like a lamb dish. From can we Af- can we move to Beirut and just host the podcast from there? Kabuli Palav is an Afghan. It's actually a Pashtun food. That is why I mentioned it. Oh, there you go. He knows more about Pashtun food than I do. Um, but it's made with lamb, which this I'm guy, always sympathetic to. And it's fucking line cook over here. I'm I in love favor lamb. of. Yeah, I know. It's why I'm so pro Middle Eastern food, honestly. Why do Americans not eat lamb? What's the deal? Because uh, they feel bad about eating lambs. I don't know. My last girlfriend would not eat lamb, wouldn't eat any food, wouldn't eat any meat except for Cain's chicken. She told me she f- could feel the protein splitting apart in her teeth. That's insane. But she still, yeah, it, that is insane. She would never eat lamb. That's um, ri- It's ridiculous. So out of these groups, uh, they all have different international backers. As mentioned, Itihad is primarily backed by Saudi Arabia and Egypt, uh, a little bit by the King of Jordan, uh, and then a couple like other NGOs and shit. Uh, meanwhile, Hizbi Islami Khalis is mostly backed by the CIA and Charlie Wilson. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, Charlie movie. Wilson. Yeah, Charlie Wilson's a huge advocate for Hizbi Islami. Uh, really, most American politicians are at this point. Um, the arms. So, uh, anyone who is listening to this, if you feel like reading a particularly interesting book, Prince Turkey Al Faisal Al Saud's book. Uh, which I've mentioned before, is incredibly thorough and written as like an intelligence report, basically. Uh, So he details things that are super boring and nobody cares about. Uh, But he also includes very funny analyses of like the various Mujahideen groups. That's kind of like what we do here. Yeah, no, including like describing uh, Hekmachar Golbuddin as scrupulous and organized, an excellent administrator. And then following that with jealous, even of his own junior lieutenants. Because <laughs> nothing says I'm a great administrator, like I'm going to make sure that I have no potential enemies, even within my own organization. 
Do you remember that book that they wrote about uh, Milosevic, the biography that had an extensive uh, description of how he was a fat little boy in school and was made fun of? Yes. One of my favorite political biographies. I actually read that before uh, it became Elon, a meme on Twitter. Elon like I Musk just happened like, to... tells the equivalent story in his autobiography. He doesn't have to. Uh, it's not about how he was fat, but it's about how the most formative experience of his developmental years is that he got kicked down a flight of stairs in high school <laughs> you gotta be i don't maybe the, i feel like the, the culture might have been different but like i feel like the culture may have been different at the time but i feel like if you got to get bullied in high school you had to try really hard to stand out he was a booer so uh, maybe like where, where, where did he go to high school south africa okay well there, there, there's plenty of booers over there it's like booer nation yeah we know but they're also not like notoriously pleasant. Don't Bowers go to private school or something? Yeah, he did. They, they don't go to private Bower school? He got kicked down the flight of stairs in private Bower school. Okay, well then, so the fact that he was a Bower is relevant. He's just a nerd. No, I'm just saying that like Bowers are vicious people. Yeah, you just want, okay, so it's like children are vicious people, but usually by the time that they're teenagers, they're a little bit less, they're just less invested. Well, children are mean because they haven't like learned what social cues to pick up on to determine. I don't the line think that. I just think children don't have better things to do because in high school, the reason that the reason that bullying stopped in high school, I always thought, like for everyone that was there, was just like everyone had too much shit to do. They yeah, had better you can do things. Drugs, to, you can get it's laid. like you can you can get laid, you can do drugs, but you also have like the SATs. You've got to go to class. Like you know, you have to start doing work in school for once. Like there's just you have to get a part time job. You have to prepare for college. It's like. You just have better shit to do with your time than to push someone down a flight of stairs. Um, like again, yeah. you might you might verbally like make fun of someone. You might right, I which means Elon Elon was probably particularly annoying even in high school. I wonder if social media has like brought bullying back in a new way for high schoolers now that it's like less effort and like you can like and you can coordinate it. It used to have to be like you'd have to have like the mean girl or the big bully and then they'd have their little entourage and they would all like they'd have like this very rigid structure. But now it's like now you can humiliate and destroy someone's life just like through like this kind of disconnected like network of people. You could you could really accelerate bullying like the potential there is insane. You should have Nick Land write a paper about uh, yeah, we, accelerationist we should, bullying. We should go long on, on bullying. I'm, I'm bullish on it. Um, you know, if we, if we, you know what they say in the digital world, like, you know, when you own the space, owning the space is the biggest thing. Like Uber I, just owns the app where like Uber, Tinder, they just own the apps where like, where these interactions happen. So if we create the bullying app, and we get in on it early, we can own that digital space. Did I tell you about my neighborhood? We will be, you would be the train master from Matrix 3. Did I tell you about my neighbor who bought land in Metaverse? Your your what the what what my my neighbor bought land in metaverse. Okay, he's a landowner in the metaverse. Uh, yeah, in real life, he is a part time worker at a cabinet factory and a part time line cook. So uh, probably okay. shouldn't have been throwing money away on metaverse, but that's but besides the point. He's a well, I mean, like when I say, you know, you're not that's not what I really meant by owning the digital space, but. <laughs> But that is how he interpreted it for sure, though, because well, he's he like, argued to me that he was going to sell this land to companies for what? So to develop 
the companies were going <laughs> to be obligated to buy it. That's the thing about the death of cryptocurrency is that like you could like you could make I don't know an argument for investing in computing power or something. Yeah. But what now? Right. Like is this is it's gonna go back like the only other <laughs> example I can think of is like when Enron tried to like sell bandwidth on the fucking market. Oh yeah, they did do that. When Prince Turkey Al Faisal writes about these groups, he uh, obviously has a skewed perspective. Not to say that anyone who writes about the Mujahideen doesn't have a skewed perspective. Because not it's, me, I'm objective. I'm not. Um, no, that's, that's your own fault. I don't think that we should be. I'm completely 100%. I, I do the news, dude. I'm serious. That's fair. Yeah. Um, I'm just, I'm right, is the idea. So when they're just... We're objectivists now. I didn't say uh, that. Hold on. Well, you said that uh, you said that you are objective, and that makes you right. Therefore, you are an objectivist. Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't want to have to read Atlas Shrugged again. Oof. It's going to be a long, t- long life for you, bud. I'm yeah. sorry that you have to live through it. Fucking um, Agni Taggart, girl boss, queen. Don't it's say girl boss. Laura will get mad when she listens. Laura is not watching. She will absolutely listen to this. No, she won't. And she's in the bedroom right now. She can probably hear me. You're the one. Fine. Just do your do your stick about. We're getting off topic. Um, okay. So um, when he's describing Harakat uh, Inkilab e Islami Islamic Revolutionary Movement, uh, his following sentence to this is a misnomer designed to disguise its true character. Like Khalees, so Muhammadi had been a well-known scholar teaching in his own madrasas. His strength lay in his Pathan tribal links. Uh, also, uh, Saudis use the word Pathan instead of Pashtun. Because? Uh, I have no idea, but I know that India used to do the same thing. It's like an antiquated term for Pashtun. Okay. Um, one of his early recruits from Kandahar is Mullah Hassan, uh, a, an important personality in the Taliban. Uh, Mullah Omar in Hizbi Islamic Police. Uh, a lot of the guys who are going to eventually become the Taliban, right, uh, start off in these groups. Uh, and if they didn't start off in these groups, they were probably just too young. Um, so the important thing to note from all of the intelligence agency briefs is that there's really only two, maybe three Mojahideen groups in a functional sense. Uh, you have Jamiat, you have Hizbi Islami, you maybe have Hizbi Islamic police, uh, and then you definitely have Hizbi Wadat. Uh, but again, Hizbi Wadat at this point is not doing anything for us. They're right. off in Iran waiting. When we move into the actual Soviet-Afghan war, we'll see a little bit more of them. Um, but for right now, we're really split between those two, three. Uh, Hizbi Islamic Khalis is kind of a unique case, right? Because 
They don't seem. Uh, remember when we talked about the call Parsham split, and you said that uh, there was no real division there. I said that the division was not strictly ideological, and to some degree was more circumstantial. But yeah. yes, same. If yeah. that's the same idea, then I will endorse it. Like there is a division, but it is primarily based seemingly in just being a division. Factions get a faction. Right. Uh, so Mohammed Khalis splits with Golbuddin Hekmachar, uh, and his direct reason for this, much like Golbuddin Hekmachar's reason for splitting with Jabiat, is that uh, democracy is incompatible with Islam. Uh, Khalis just decides one day that he is as good of a representative of Hizbi Islami as Golbuddin. That is uh, seemingly nothing because he's a less efficient leader. He never builds as large of an army. He cannot gather international sources of funding as well. Honestly, if like if you gave me like he doesn't commit as many war crimes, which probably makes him a better representative to people. But in terms of like being a militarily functioning organization, not at all. I have no idea why he decides that he should split. Um, both of them hate Jamiat and especially hate Masood. Uh, the other Mujahideen will mockingly refer to Masood as Le Parisien. Why would uh, that? Why is that? He's a Western sympathizer who speaks French. Pick it on the French guy. It's not cool. Uh, he at one point says that his ideal post Mojahedin government would be a Swiss or French system. <laughs> As you might imagine, do it for the culture. This yes. earns him a large amount of support with Salafists. They really love to hear that. Yeah. Michael's being sarcastic if you can't tell. Um, so Masood is backed by DGSE, which is French intelligence, of course. We've, dis we've discussed that before. He what does DGSE stand for, by the way? I have no idea. Uh, Directoire de la Sécurité Générale Espionnage. Something like that. Uh, Directorate General for External Security. Sécurité Externale. Yeah. Ex external. I got to practice Dur my pronunciation. Direction, Direction General de la Sécurité Exterior. Exterior. Ich. Sure. That's how you do the French I, R. I know I that much. Um, it's too it's Italian. Don't listen to him. Don't trust what he says. Okay, so Mahazi Mili's leader, his last name is Gailini. And about six different times today while I was talking about him in my, like, out loud to myself. I said, Gailini. Gailini. Yeah, yeah, I, I really wanted that name to be Italian. <laughs> Is it not? No. No, it's, it's, it's Afghani, I guess. He's Arab. He's Arab. I might have missed who Gailini was in this conversation. You thought uh, No, he... He's like a relatively minor leader of one of the moderate factions. Uh, Mahazi Mili, they're really, really into the return of 
So here they're into constitutional democracy. Uh, so the main split between most of these groups, uh, namely Hizbi Islami, Hizbi Khalis, and Jamiat, because they're the only ones that actually function like matter in a real way. Jamiat believes in a democratic Islamic republic, um, primarily based on the fact that they come from a well-educated kind of like bourgeois liberal section of the population to begin with. Uh, and most of their support comes from ethnic minorities, right? So objectively, they are better off under bourgeois democracy than either uh, Goldblatt and Hekmatyar's clerical fascist dictatorship or Hizbi Islamic Khalis, who support the Loya Jirga. So this kind of traditional tribal consensus-based leadership. Uh, in order, they like probably would do better with Loya Jarga than with Golbuddin, but only so much, right? It's just a return to the old status quo, uh, but with more clerical rule and no king. Uh, these groups are all really opposed to the return of Zaire Shah. Rabani is opposed to it, but only in as much as it's politically expedient. He's a politician first and is the only one who that is true about in this entire circle. Uh, it's why Rabani can attract like Western Europe. Mm -hmm. The reason that Western Europe is attracted to Rabani is because his hands are cleaner than the rest of theirs. He is less likely to have, like, you know, a mass murder under his belt or uh, to randomly carry out a massacre like Hekmatyar Golbuddin. He has Masood leading on the ground, who, again, is bringing doctors to people and, like, kind of implementing this, like, Islamic social democracy in his regions he does, that he controls. He, he doesn't have the berserker debuff, is what you're saying. Yeah, none of them are, like, the same kind of batshit insane dude that Hekmatyar Golbuddin is. That's an asset for your party. Yeah, unless you really want CIA funding. That's yeah, if you really if you if you really want the like Operation Cyclone, Operation Condor, like DLC pack, maybe. So at the time the CIA is running off a document that they officially say doesn't exist. Uh, to this day? Absolutely. Cool. Uh, you're, they you're say, you guys, you guys get to see the classified shit. So they are saying that to this day, they insist that this is a Soviet propaganda tool. Uh, whenever journalists showed it to like former CIA agents or former military guys, they were almost always like, uh, well, I mean, I've never seen that particular document, but I've seen plenty that look just like it. So I can't say for sure that that one is real. But if you gave me the opportunity to guess, I'm going to say it is. So 30-31B uh, uh, describes how the U.S. is supposed to choose which groups to back. And so there's a criteria. Well, there's like a grading rubric more so than a criteria. Okay. Uh, and like a weighted rubric. So the most heavily weighted is anti-communism. 
are you anti-communist? Yes or no? no. Uh, at, at this point, Jamiat has already demonstrated at least some level of willingness to cooperate with the Soviet-backed government. Oh, that's a no-no. Yeah. Right. So they already lost that. All right. That's bad. Uh, then it's, are you effective? And then it's, are you democratic? Let's describe effectiveness in more detail. Uh, do you kill Soviets well? Okay. That's not included in the anti-communist part? Uh, no, because like... So is ideological anti-communism more important than actually fighting communists with guns? Yes, because it's easier to train people to be soldiers than it is to train people to be anti-communists. Like anti-communist in, in an ideological sense, as yes. opposed to one that's just born out of circumstances. Right. Like Masood, if he grows up in a slightly different place with slightly different conditions, is probably like a Nordic social democrat, realistically. It's funny. It, reminds me, it actually reminds me of that uh, one quote from Charlie Wilson's War, which is a relevant movie to this discussion, which is... yeah. Uh, you can teach him to type, but you can't teach him to grow tits, which he says of his secretaries. Huh. Yeah. That movie is very explicit about uh, Wilson being a pig. So so they never really trust. Uh, so Masood is a great example of uh, what is probably the real takeaway from my section of this, uh, which is that communist theory in practice works better when practiced by reactionaries then capitalist theory in practice works when practiced by supposed communists. Um, so at the time, Masood is functionally practicing dialectical materialism via warfare. And in what ways is this the case? So he is reading and studying Mao's works on the Long March. Okay, so he's actually studying the communist material. Yes, he's reading Che's on guerrilla warfare, and he is reading Vo Win Jiao. Uh, it's a large part of what leads to his personal split with Goldbud and Hekmatyar uh, is that he does not think that the ISI is going to be able to teach them how to fight off the Soviets with like a core of his argument being the ISI can't fight off the Americans and the Soviet-backed Vietnamese just fought off the Americans. Yeah, that makes sense. So, like, if so the, like, to, like to study in Mao and like the entire point of those like doctrine like those war doctrines those theories of war is that they make use of the limited materials that are available to developing countries when fighting large imperialist powers yes it is it is it is quite literally a very analogous situation with the soviet union in, in afghanistan yeah especially because afghanistan like again if you look at the terrain of the country it has a very that is the kind of terrain that i would imagine is very amenable to guerrilla warfare carried out by people who are like familiar who live there uh, yes, to which is largely why he begins in Panjashir. Okay. Uh, so he is from Panjashir. Uh, he knows the valleys. He knows the side valleys. He knows his methods very well. And he knows the people, right? He knows that this is a historically impoverished area. The Soviet-backed government has mostly been ignoring it because it doesn't have a significant amount of wealth and it doesn't have a large Pashtun population. Uh, and at this point, uh, you know, I mean, 
is trying to consolidate a government and you don't go to like the least fortunate area to be like, yeah, this is where I'm going to build my whole backing of power from. Just going to turn my... Um, which is what Masood does. Masood shows up with 17 rifles, 30 men, and $150 in cash. Uh, and ultimately grows his army to be either the largest or second largest of any single Mujahideen commander. Mm -hmm. uh, he takes tanks. Uh, he makes the statement at one point. So he's also reading The Art of War. Uh, he More people should. More communists should do that. Weirdly, he's also reading De Gaulle. Uh, I mean, not weirdly. He's a Francophile. Like, he's also reading De Gaulle at this time. To understand the partisan struggle. Um, him and Hekmachar, or Golbud and Hekmachar have a large dispute over this. Uh, because Golbudin at the time is telling people that his military strategy is divinely inspired. Uh, and Masood is like, that's great for you. Um, but for the rest of us who have to fight a war without divine inspiration, uh, I'm going to use a combination of theory and practice. And then every time I practice, I'm going to re-theorize. Uh, and then he like writes a detailed thing where he functionally describes Mao's theory of guerrilla warfare uh, in like a very real sense. What's the name of this document? Ooh, I'll have to find it for you. Okay. Um, I have quotes from it pulled though. Okay, just read the quotes. We'll get to the document later. Um, I just wanted so to read for myself at some point. He leads an uprising first in 75, which he loses. Mm -hmm. uh, and he says that this is the most important part of his struggle because this is where he learns the most. It's from this failure that he gains the most experience fighting against the government. He learns how to fight against the government. He learns the difference between in asymmetrical warfare. Right, so he develops this kind of early set of practices long before any, well, three years before anyone else really four years. Um, the Soviet government also gives him so many boons in developing this. Uh, at one point, he really tries to draw the Soviets away because he finds out. So he has a pretty wide intelligence network that is also inside of the Afghani intelligence network. Mm -hmm. Um. And would like have to convince people sometimes not to defect. Uh, defection is a huge issue in the Afghan army. Uh, primarily to Jabiat. Uh, and Jabiat is functionally the only intelligence group that the Mujahideen have for a lot of this. Uh, I don't know if you can tell from everything else about Gobud and Hekmatyar, the man doesn't value intelligence all that much. Uh, if you if you can run into a town and shoot everyone, that is more valuable to him than knowing how the town's composed ideologically. So he's not working out at the gym. No, doesn't work out. I'm sorry, he doesn't work out at the library. What the hell? You know what I meant? Uh, yeah, no, I know what you. You meant. know what you know what I meant. That's insane because I 
whatever. Um, so we're hitting the three hour mark. So the podcast is going to get worse from here on out. Yeah. He details it into four distinct stages. The first is uh, strategic defensive, uh, which of course is very similar to the Maoist theory of guerrilla warfare, right? Uh, so he goes strategic defensive and then strategic base building, uh, where he tries to take the base that he's already built and expand a support network over a broader area around it. When that network gets too large, you build a new base. And then you go on strategic defensive at that base, and you're still in strategic equilibrium at the old one. Once you have a network of these, then all of a sudden we can go on strategic offensive. And so is that the third step, strategic offensive? Yeah. Yep. Strategic offensive. And then as we gain territory, all of a sudden we enter the general phase where we start working to capture the whole country, right? What's the name of that phase? The general phase. The general. Uh, all right, like in a like Marxist sense, the abstract and specific, right? So we are building specific bases and then we are building the country as a base as a whole in the abstract, in the general. Okay, yeah. Um, and again, he is pulling this pretty much directly from Boeing, Jap, and Mao and Che. So um, he's also like a true Panjashir nationalist. Like he's definitely a Tajik nationalist first and foremost. Uh, he pays lip service to Islamism because it's kind of necessary because it's the only thing uniting any of them. It's, it's politically expedient, yes. Yeah. Uh, so at one point, he tries to march away from the Panjashir Valley down this small side valley because he's trying to draw the Soviets away from where towns are mm -hmm. um, because they know that... So at the time, he's raiding Soviet supply lines constantly. Uh, a direct quote from him is that uh, any raid that doesn't take home supplies is a failed raid. So quite the opposite of Golbuddin, who believes that any raid that kills people is a successful raid. He's focused on building a kind of long-term strength, right? Mm -hmm. We have to be developing a real army. He is uniquely skilled in terms of military theory out of the Mujahideen and the Afghan army uh, to the point where like uh, one of the Soviet generals, ooh, what is his name? I am not seeing it. It wasn't Zhukov or Karpov or Kasper or one of the other names that I listed? Uh, it was Zhukov, you're right. It, okay. I told Suda earlier that it was Zhukov and Suda told me I was wrong. It looks like he, he, he's the one who's wrong. Because he said Zhukov wasn't a general there. Was it a general in Russia? No, in Afghanistan. Generals have lots of things to do. They're generals. Yeah. It's, like, um, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty lofty position. But Zhukov at one point uh, said that no matter which side of the war you were on, you had to admire Masood for his military talent. Um, which... Uh, is largely how seemingly everybody feels about him, except for the CIA, because he doesn't just like run around committing mass murder all the time, which is really what they want. Uh, so it's it's observed in contemporary times that the way that the U.S. handles Afghanistan, specifically the Muj, specifically the Mujahideen, is significantly different from how it handles a place like Angola or Argentina or Chile or El Salvador. 
where they wanted an army that could control the territory, right? Mm -hmm. The Mujahideen are never capable of that. The Mujahideen do not win the war. The war is won by Jumbish splitting off from the government Mm -hmm. and taking most of the military officers with them. The Mujahideen by themselves, I mean, maybe Rabani would have done it eventually, but he would have had to have convinced everyone to stop doing what they had done the entire time, which is sign a truce and then break it immediately. So this entire this, this entire strategy was a complete failure then. Wait, so so is it even could one even say that Mujahid, Mujahideen were more successful than the Calchist in terms of like like organizing the peasantry? As no. some people seem to claim? Yeah, that seems like so the Mujahideen have Shit. no pop, they have no popular base. They have uh, these are fringe groups. Yeah, with like the possible exception being the people who are directly under Masood's leadership. Mm-hmm. You but admire Masood a little bit too, I think. I do. He's a good. He's a strong military commander with an excellent understanding of how to. Like he actually understands managing a country as well, which is impressive and unique amongst these groups. Against Mujahideen, yes. Yeah. And also kind of amongst the Calchas and Persham. Mm-hmm. Like nobody seems to be managing things well. Uh, meanwhile, the first thing he does in every city he takes is install a military leader, a civilian leader, a prosecutor, a judge, a doctor. Okay, very nice. Which gives him a huge advantage over everyone else who are just like, uh, so you need me to pass a judicial decision? Mm, no, see, I'm going to have to call a dude in Peshwar about that. <laughs> like, that's not a functional way to run a fucking country. And neither is, like, every punishment is executable, right? Which is kind of the alternative to, like, I have to call Peshwar is... You committed a crime. Now I shoot you. Yeah. Uh, what it, it's it's bizarre. Yeah, it's a terrible option to have to choose between the two. So, like Masood de facto looks very competent because he is just not wildly incompetent. Yeah, like, I, don't even, I don't even know that he's impressive. I just know that he doesn't. When you're comparing him with a group of people who are so bad at managing regions, <laughs> he looks awesome. <laughs> um, so what ends up happening is uh, other countries like even the ISI Pakistani intelligence starts to notice that the CIA is not treating this like they are other countries in what ways they're not proposing for unity they're not like if they were then they would have cracked down on Goldwood and Hekinchar right they mm-hmm. know they make the CIA observes as early as 83 that Goldwood and Hekmatyar is slowing down shipments to Masood, that Masood is not getting any supplies and Goldwood and Hekmatyar is raiding most of them. And a like reasonable country would be like, we should stop that. Yeah. Because these are our allies. <laughs> Ostensibly. Uh, they don't do that. At this no is, point do they do this that. Is, it is a failure to operate on the most fundamental level. But it's not a failure. I, it's 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 by the CIA or by the Peshwar Seven. I, I Peshwar. I, 
uh, I don't, I'm not, I, am I even following this right? No, you are. Uh, that is exactly how you should feel about this. Okay, well then quit acting like, uh, bro. Well, so the CIA have their own plan, which nobody else is sharing. They have one plan uh, that they have roped zero other people in on. Oh, outside no. of the U.S. government, which is to leave Afghanistan destabilized. Mm-hmm. They do not want Afghanistan to have a functional government. They do not want them to be able to operate independently. What they want is for Afghanistan to be an unstable country that gives them a base to operate out of. The anti-fragility of the CIA never ceases to astound. They, 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 they want the chaos. Yeah, like they simultaneously want order. And if they can't have order, then they want the most abject chaos possible. Right. Well, they don't. They don't. They, they they don't want an unjust order. They want a, they want a just order, which is total capitulation to the United States. An unjust order would be becoming a satellite state of the Soviet Union. You can't right. do that. So you can't do that. That's not cool. They have like a list of options. The first is we reinstall King Zahir Shah. Mm, no, he was dependent on the Soviets. Well, so he is at this point dependent on Italy and the U.S. Okay. Right. He's he's living in Arlington, Virginia now. So so he's going to. OK. So the idea is that you bring him in and he's going to be he's going to he's going to drink from the drink from the dog bowl. Yeah, he is Trujillo and Papa Doc. He's just another U.S. puppet. Uh, that's option one. And if we can't have option one, then we're going to have option two, which is nobody gets to take nobody gets to play this game. I'm taking the ball, which in this case is civil and social order mm -hmm. and people's lives. And I'm making sure that none of you can have it. Uh, so they constantly throw money at, at Goldblatt and Hekmachar, 600 fucking million dollars, knowing that the man is going to do absolute chaos with it. Uh, Absolutely the most heinous shit imaginable. Yeah. He is called the butcher of in two different cities at, simultaneously. That is impressive. What cities? Uh, Herat and Kabul, I believe. Herat and? Because as we've discovered, some very interesting things happened in both Herat and Kabul. Like the competition should be stacked in both cities. Yeah. That's like, being the, most, that's like being the most cracked out guy in Philadelphia and Detroit. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like... At some points, it's like kind of running a competition. It feels like running a competition between like, well, who's the worst Nazi, Goebbels or Himmler? Uh, except that like, it would be like, who's the worst Nazi, Goebbels or some dude in the Aryan Brotherhood in prison? That's how bad Goebbels and Hekmatyar looks compared to every other person alive yeah. in this story. Uh, and that is the US's boy. Bill Casey is fucking loves the man. It's their boy. Uh, the head of the Kabul station for the CIA describes him as uh, the giving him the darkest chill in his bones he's ever felt. Uh, he mentions that sometimes they would hug as comrades in arms, but that uh, whenever he pulled away, he would realize from how Hekmatyar was looking at him that the moment this war is over, he will put a bullet in his head just like he would to a Soviet. Uh, and he knows that Heckman would not feel bad about that. 
Um, Where did they find these monsters? Uh, Hekmatar, they pull out of prison for killing one of his students. What a character. Yeah, like when they find him, he is already in prison for killing a Maoist while he is one of his teaching. Students. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Go with that. Go with that. Yeah. He's, uh, he's a, a, like a really, like, even then he was a piece of shit. Uh, coincidentally at the Muslim youth organization, he gets elected as the director of political education. Uh, so it's like him, Rabani, and Masood all leading this organization, and he hates Masood and Rabani. Uh, he's a hardline Qutbiist. Uh, so Qutbi is the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood with Albana. Um, significantly, Qutbi is a strong believer in the practice of declaring people takfir. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Albana is uh, a strong believer in uh committing jihad against any apostates which makes dynamic duo yeah makes for uh a unique combination when you combine it politically um but overall these are like again this is a small proportion of the overall populace right Mm -hmm. like especially that is backing goldblatt and hekmachar it's literally why he has to play nice with other groups for at least most of it uh, he also has a weird policy internally that you are allowed to report other Mujahideen groups to the Soviet government to have them taken out for you. And like these are people, these are Mujahideen groups that they have like personal beef with. Well, that's every Mujahideen group for Hakmatar Golden. Okay. So what they'll do is like it's. Yeah. So they'll report them to the Soviets. Yeah, Masood has a policy where he doesn't escalate, right? So if you attack me, I, I'll I'll fight you off. I'll attack you back. Uh, Retaliation. You know, small, right. Small skirmishes we can ignore for the most part because it's more useful to keep a potential long-term ally. It's also why he ends up allying with the Soviets. Well, calling a ceasefire with the Soviets because Goldblatt and Hekmachar constantly is reporting him to the Soviets. That's just he more has, chances. That's more chances for dialogue. He has a whole unit that is just dedicated to following Masood around <laughs> and reporting him to the Soviets <gasps> because he identifies very early on. So uh, Golden Hekmachar is uh, this. Uh, so there's this uh, in Steve Cole's book. He mentions that. Uh, the traditional military theory that was used in Afghanistan was that you uh, fight to end conflict. You fight so that when it's over, there's peace and both sides can come to a lasting resolution of this, right? Uh, Goldwood and Hekmachar's serious change from that. He believes in fighting until he's the only person left standing. Uh, him and Curtis LeMay would have gotten along really well. <laughs> like Curtis LeMay would have been what like, a... if there's if there's one American left and one or one American left and zero Soviets, that means we won. And Hekmatar Goldwooden would have been like, 
I feel the exact same way about Afghanistan and the Soviets. And Curtis LeMay would have been like, you're my kind of guy. <laughs> and they would have sat around and LeMay would have drank. And then Goldblatt and Hekmachar would have shot him for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> like, it's a... Um, what a savage. Yeah, it's a super fucked situation. The Mujahideen never seem to improve. Uh, they have these weird ethnic and tribal rivalries that always, like, draw weird lines between them, seemingly. Again, like, they're the most, like, this is the most ultra-reactionary sect of the populace. So, like, people in general probably don't give a shit about most of this. Uh, but, like, Rabani, who is the only, like reasonable politician here in terms of politicians gets excluded almost completely from the Shura, which is like a leadership decision-making group. He gets given like a shitty small portfolio, even though he probably should have been like prime minister in exile the whole time. Uh, and in spite of being the second largest group, they have the second least votes because he is Taji. Uh, there are absolutely zero Durrani in leadership at all, uh, which like not great when they have the most money in Afghanistan and you're a government in exile, right? You, you like governments in exile rely on the help bourgeois to take care of them when you don't have that. It sucks. Um, Modernization of warfare by the local leaders is pretty much universally opposed by the external leaders. Uh, any sort of modernization by the local leaders is pretty much universally opposed by the external leaders. Uh, anytime they like want to keep Soviet reforms, they're opposed to that. Mm -hmm. uh, seemingly anytime they want to do anything, which is very easy to say when you're sitting in Peshawar, which is not a war zone, right? Like, it's very easy to be uncompromising when the only thing you have to do is issue statements about how uncompromising you are. <laughs> uh, otherwise, you end up looking like a fucking insane person like Goldwood and Hekmachar, who is actually uncompromising and in the war. Like, that's what ends up happening when you refuse to ever compromise, like we talked about with the call, right? Where the call still seemed to be able to make some compromises. It's just not constant. It's just not enough, usually. Yeah. Right. Um, and then on top of this, you have widespread lack of support for the Mujahideen growing. Mm -hmm. uh, specifically because of the two Hizbi Islamis. Uh, because both of them are pretty brutal. And Itihad, which has no attachment to Afghanistan, other than that, like, Sayaf happened to live there for some of his life. But he lives in Saudi Arabia and Egypt for much longer. Uh, and is mostly attached to the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. Like, he is not, his Mujahideen group is only nominally Afghan militants. They're mostly, like, foreign terrorists of the worst ilk. Like these are the same people who then go on to fight in Yugoslavia and then continue to go on to fight in Kuwait and then go on to continue to fight in Libya. Like the guys who, 
what it all boils down to is who you got backed by, whether or not you had international support and what level of international support you had, your external leadership's ability to distribute those supplies, and your internal leadership's ability to lead in spite of contradictions with external leadership, right? Oh, all right. And this is the this is what constitutes the distinction between the different Mujahideen, Mujahideen groups. Yeah, because after a little bit, like, are you going to bring back the king? No. Uh, so those groups are out. Yeah. Uh, the Maoist groups are out. And we're left with Jamiat, Hizbi Islami, both of them, and to some extent, Itihad, as like a source of funding from the Gulf states. That's really all they're there for, is as a vehicle for Osama bin Laden and the Saud family. But like Osama bin Laden in particular becomes very relevant in the future to Itihad. Uh, and is Itihad is largely the source of the accusations that the U.S. funds and supports Osama bin Laden throughout the 80s. Uh, because Bin Laden seems to constantly be hanging out with them. That's the kind of, that's the kind of heuristics we like to use over here. So, well, I mean, yeah. like the CIA officially denies that they ever once met Bin Laden in the eighties. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, the fucking station chief at, uh, Ooh, city with an M. Montpellier. No, uh, you mentioned it earlier. That's why I was hoping you would know. Oh, American city? No, Afghani city. I don't think I did. I mentioned Herat and I mentioned Kabul. Uh, Mazari Sharif, sorry. Mazari Sharif, yes. That was way, way back. Yeah. Three hours ago. Um, yeah, but like the station chief at Mazari Sharif admires bin Laden personally and talks about how great of a guy he is, uh, which makes it very strange for a man who has never met him to say those things. Uh, but again, what do I know? Like, I... Could be a fanboy. We don't know. Yeah, he could just be following around Etihad constantly and just... Could be a stand. over Bin Laden. Um, but other than that, that is pretty much the end of the Peshwar 7. Um, it's a giant clusterfuck, and really... The only takeaway that you should have from it is that Marxist theory applied always works better than non-Marxist theory, as we will see during the Soviet-Afghan war and how Massoud runs roughshod over Soviet supply lines for a while. Do you have anything else? I do not. I feel like we've decently summarized what seems to be the background to the Soviet-Afghan war then. We have an understanding about the different, like the history of the political regimes that reigned in the area. We have a decent history, I think, of the system of, all right, this has been Hayden DePriest and Michael Petroselli, and this has been Timber Sycamore presents Afghanistan. Thank you for watching. <laughs>